Hey everybody, cover your ears. This is James from Yola Tango, and you're listening to WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor, Michigan. was Frank Ocean starting us off on the Living Writer Show here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm Amanda Yuli, your host this summer, and we're in the studio in Ann Arbor taping on June 13th, 2019. I'm very happy to say our guest today is Ocean Vuong. Hello. Hello. Hello, Amanda. Glad to be here. Glad you're here. Thanks for having us. Of course. Um, so Ocean Vuong is the author of the very recently released novel, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. And we're going to be speaking to him today about the book um, and more. I think the first thing I'd like to do is um, just read your bio and sort of introduce our listeners to you. And then after that, hopefully you can introduce the book. Great. Um, Ocean Vuong is the author of the critically acclaimed poetry collection, Night Sky with Exit Wounds, winner of the Whiting Award and the T.S. Eliot Prize. His writings have also been featured in The Atlantic, Harper's, The Nation, The New Republic, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. Born in Saigon, Vietnam, he currently lives in Northampton, Massachusetts. This is his first novel. And we're going to talk about that, too. You're known for your poetry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, would you like to, for those of us who are listening who haven't, um, haven't read the novel yet, would you like to speak about it a little bit? Yeah. Um, the novel is essentially a letter from a son to a mother who can't read. And at first that seems like almost a comically futile project. Why write anything to someone who will never receive it? And I think it's that very futility that made me excited about writing this book because then the pressure comes on language. Mm -hmm. Is it worth it? Does it matter to orchestrate our thoughts under the architecture of the sentence if no one will find that sentence or our targeted recipient is not there? And I think ultimately it's a book about failure, the failure of communication, the failure of hegemonic masculinity, the failure of the American dream. And, and, in the midst of all that, can language achieve a place where feeling can be inhabited fully in the American body when we interrogate 
and reckon with the violent histories and the currents of this country. That's beautifully put. Thank you. Thank you. How did you How did you come to write the book? Where did it start for you? Especially through the lens of that futility. Yeah. I'd, I'd love for you to explore that a little bit more. It started by writing essays. Mm-hmm. I wrote a few essays um, before I started teaching, and I just felt like I needed to have a place uh, where my thoughts can be for my students to go to. Um, I was always mm-hmm. thinking about all of these things. And from there, I realized, you know, I, I stumbled into the novel in a way because I was writing these essays and I was writing in almost, you know, the Joan Didion style where it's the personal essay um, with a strong eye casting its light and its gaze upon the world. And I always love that notion that the the eye is often seen as a black hole. You know, when we write it, it, it sucks up all the light, me, myself, and I. Mm-hmm. But I also saw another opportunity in the eye being a searchlight, that you can really shine your gaze on what's around you. And by doing that, you actually say more about who you are. And from there, I just started naturally, I think, in retrospect, inventing, embellishing. And I, I thought, oh, Lord, we gotta, <laughs> it's a novel. Um, and I realized that's what I did. I, that's what I've always done with my poems as well. I find myself uh, more as a myth maker than a historian or a, mm-hmm. a, a journalist. I begin with truth and work towards art um, in the same tradition of of the poets before me, uh, Dante, Homer, um, you know, all those folks, uh, Milton, they turned reality, historical reality, into a mythic possibility. And it's the best thing, I think, um, as a writer, is, is to use your life in order to create a life no one has lived almost to create a parallel possibility and even a a futurity, if you will. So does this book, I have, I guess I have the question about your poetry and about this book. Does this book begin with autobiography as a, as a kernel of a starting point? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the first chapter is an essay. Yeah. Um, fact checked by the infamous folks at the New Yorker. <laughs> yes, right? they're known I am to go to grave this. sites. You know, so I have, they they do I hardcore. have some experiences with that, and I'm aware. Yes. Yeah. So fact checked. Yeah. Deeply, we deeply. can say. Yeah. yeah. And I wanted that to be part of the book's architecture. Mm-hmm. To to say that here's an actual document mm-hmm. that begins with nonfiction as its foundation for creativity. And, you know, I could have just wrote a novel with a plot, purely invented, set it anywhere, and that would be fine. I could use these characters, put them in those scenes, and it'll still be true. The feelings Uh will still be true. But it was important for me to say that this is also a map of art making. That the book yeah. is, as much as it is a coming-of-age story about, you know, teenage American queer youth, it's also a, a coming-of-art story. And how do we arrive at fiction with our lives? 
And I wanted to start with an essay to say that this is the ground, and from there we build a fictionalized world from it using the agency of the imagination. It's such a courageous choice because I think a more traditional, there are two more traditional paths, which are to write a novel or to to write your life and to write what happened in your life. And it it seems like you've done something entirely new um, here. Yeah. Um, I had good elders, you know, I think, I think of, I think of, of autobiography of Red by Ann Carson, how so much of the texture of that life is Anne's life in Canada, that the, the fjords, the tundra, the, the lone country roads that Red, the main character, this gay boy, gay monster, uh, uh, inhabits. And so I think I had I had good ancestors. Even if we think about the the tome of American fiction in Moby Dick and Herman Melville, that's an autobiographical novel. Folks rarely um, perceive it that way. Right? Scholarship rarely touches on that aspect. But in fact, Herman lived that life. He went to Nantucket. He hunted those whales. He traveled the world, and. It was such a powerful novel because he essentially said no to nothing. Every detour he wanted, every curiosity he followed thoroughly. You know, uh, 20 pages on how to harvest spermaceti, hmm. so be it. Um, you know, the, a travelogue on the Nantucket shoreline, so be it. A theological inquiry on the color white, how it relates to the whale and race in 19th century, you know, uh, antebellum America. I mean... Bold. Incredibly (laughs) bold and uncompromising. And I think, essentially, it was a very queer book to me because it said no to nothing. It allowed every part of itself to be fully there. And I thought, what would happen if a queer Asian American writer said no to nothing? And that was kind of the courage... That, that I drove the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the book, to me, there's so many narratives in the book um, about newcomers. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could speak about that. I mean, there are the sort of obvious, um, obvious threads there with Little Dog, who is the main character, and his mother and his grandmother being new to the United States. But I, I felt that there were, there were so many other ways that that message resonated. Can you speak to that aspect yeah. of the book a little? Yeah, I think newness is, to me, akin to disorientation. And yeah. disorientation is a part of of poverty. And I think that's one of the undercurrents of this book, is, is class. And, you know, when you're poor, everything you encounter is new. Whether it's, a, a, you know, having new opportunities whether any any growth you have is all of a sudden novel you're breaking apart you're breaking out of a system your your mm-hmm. upward mobility right isn't is new um mm-hmm. but also because you're trapped you know being poor means you're trapped in time everything i learned growing up in hartford that everything about being poor is about waiting mm-hmm. you wait in welfare lines you want to file a sexual assault you wait you want to file for uh, uh, heating assistance you wait everything is about waiting in line and so your whole life is stagnant and 
when you do that, uh, nothing is, 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 you know, possible for you unless you break out of it. And when you break out, you realize everything is new. And in some sense, you know, little dog and his family immigrates from Vietnam to the U.S., but a lot of the the poor agrarian white folks that he encounters in Hartford and the surrounding counties were just as uh, disoriented as they tried to immigrate or migrate out of poverty. Out of poverty. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love for you to speak a little bit before we take our next break here, but you mentioned, you used the word stagnant, which I think is such... Um, so, that word is such a difficult one to apply to this text because yeah. for me it just rushed forward yeah. and there was so much motion and there was I didn't feel any waiting in the book right um, and I wonder if you if that was just my perception as a reader or if that was an intentional choice of yours too that's absolutely correct uh, absolutely yeah. correct talk and about that motion a little bit I knew that I mean if you look at the scenes and the plots in the book if you can call it a plot um not much happens. A lot of it is folks doing the most mundane things. They they share grapefruit. They look at sunsets. They have dinner. They talk over coffee at Dunkin' Donuts. And you would never think that's anything worth literature with a capital L. But I think I wanted to say that for so many folks on the margins, particularly queer folks, you know, you can you can pass a queer person on the street and you would never think that inside them, you know, there there's a whole hurricane of feeling. When you when you when you want something that society says you you're wrong to have, when you want to move from or immigrate, if you will, from one gender to another. Someone passes you and they say, Oh, that's just a person sitting down. But in fact, the interior life is an absolute windstorm of of feeling. And I think one of the praxis for myself in this novel was to turn that storm inside out so readers can feel the movement and the propulsion of feeling and emotion, even within the most mundane, quiet, quote-unquote, stagnant scenes that it, language can harness the inter interiority outwards so that feelings like love, fear, terror, desire are now the weather of the book rather than merely plot points. It's its energy. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. We're speaking to Ocean Vuong on The Living Writer Show, WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. Um, thanks so much for being here today. Deep pleasure, Amanda. Ooh, Thank glad you. you're here. We're going to take a break and hear a song, another one that you chose for our hour together. Mm -hmm. This is Britta Phillips and Drive.
to listen to that whole song. <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good choice. A good Do you want to speak a little bit about the music you chose for this hour? Yeah, I think music informs the novel in such myriad ways. And I think one of the beautiful things about it is that music is temporal texture. You know, when... 50 Cent exists in this novel, Bone Thugs and Harmony. And when you think of those two uh, musicians, you think of the early aughts, which so much of this novel mm-hmm. takes place in. And and then, of course, you think of that, you think of post-9-11. And that's another specter in this book, is, is these kids, essentially, are growing up in the shadow of this you know irreparable change in the American landscape. Overnight, you know, the notion of terror and fear, you know, haunted the country, swept the country. And it was the end of the generation to play outside. You know, we were the last generation to play outside. And after that, it was, it was childhood, as we understood it, was over and, and changed. Uh, it's something else now, but, mm-hmm. but as we understood it, it was over. And I think a lot of... Uh, that generation is marked by its music, you know, the, the, and in, in the way that the Beatles marked the 60s and 70s. Um, and, and I think music teaches us a lot about writing in the sense that, you know, you don't need the lyrics to feel. And the best songs are actually a collaboration between those two, you know, but, but, but language is almost secondary. Um, towards the feeling and you know you, people listen to a box sonata and they cry well why right I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's because they're moved to participate in the music it's what the music triggers in them and it's very personal very deep and i think the best novels and the best literature the best poems work in that way that the language just kind of pulls you into a space it doesn't tell you exactly how to feel mm-hmm. it just invites you to be more of yourself and, and i think that's I've, that's always a goal that i've had as as a writer was to create a site of invitation towards feeling rather than to be uh, didactic in how i want folks to feel no, oh, I, I totally agree that music yeah. does that. I mean, music can be such a such a shortcut to those teenage feelings or yeah. those yeah, you know a, a feelings of a different time in one's life. But I think the best books are too. Right, it's you immediate. S- you see a book cover in a used bookstore from ten years ago and say, "Oh, that's yeah. that was that feeling I had when yeah. I read that or when I heard yeah. that." It's immediate, um, and maybe mm-hmm. that's why I chose the epistolary form. The letter. Oh, let's talk about that. I wanted to talk yeah. about that later, but but you've raised it, so yeah. please tell me more. Well, you 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 brought this interesting parallel up because I think one of the most ubiquitous, you know, modes of the pop song is the you. It's always mm-hmm. to a you, <laughs> and I think that speaks to the immediacy that you're talking about. Music is so immediate. 
it we encounter it or or it might even happen to us like we don't sit down to You're listen absorbing to it. We it's absorb just it. there we move through the day and it, and it comes towards us and i think i think to choose a dialogue between two americans essentially is to say that that dialogue is enough of a plot that you don't need a linear plot that two americans talking to each other in this case two asian americans have it that dialogue possesses all of the fraught fear joys ecstasy um and drama of any well-taught plot that that the, the plot in the novel is the voice itself i want to hear you elaborate on the word that you just used dialogue mm. for what is essentially one narrator's letter yeah how does that how what is that secondary voice is a negotiation yeah. with the presence of the mother right so he's both telling her but also depicting her yes so that's what i meant when i said the eye at its best is a searchlight often it can be a, a black hole and that's that's a that's a, a very tantalizing shortfall that a lot of writers can come into because you know rarely do we get to talk uninterrupted you know <laughs> true and so and so you if you sit before a blank page it can it's very tantalizing to turn that project writing which should be about inquiry it's very easy to f turn it into almost a a list of past crimes committed against us that <laughs> the we manifesto to, of myself right yes. right right and 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 you know we, we go down the list and, and and justify our our lives and and i just i i wanted the eye to be cast outward and to portray these women who raised little dog this character um, particularly his single mother and his grandmother, women who suffer from PTSD as a ramification from the war in Vietnam and who now inherit it and live with it in America. And I wanted them to have a place. And so as he's talking to the mother, he's also describing her. He gives her the dialogue that mm -hmm. she has. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's a strange orchestration where you both speak at and speak out from and it's this reciprocal bond it's almost like they're in this claustrophobic snow globe together and they're trying to find a way out i found um one of the things that was interesting about what you just said with dialogue is that i found at moments i think my read was that the narrator was um checking himself and and yes. and not being his his full self not telling the whole story about himself and about his mother in this letter form yeah but there's the there's the contrast of the fact that she won't and cannot read it yeah so why is he checking himself yeah sort of we we rarely get to escape fully and i think that's the inquiry of the book if no one no one will find it find this letter does it really free us or is the specter of being a son and all the connotations, the fraught fear, reverence of being a son towards a mother, is that still inescapable? And I think readers will have to decide um, what they feel in that sense. But that was sort of my inquiry into it. This book was 
influenced initially by this obscure text by Franz Kafka. Hmm. And it's published as a book called Dearest Father. But it's not a book. It's an actual 70-page letter to his father that he never sent. Hmm. Now, unlike Little Dog's mother, Franz Kafka's father could read. Mm-hmm. But he never gave it to him. And it's interesting because Kafka is such a brilliant writer, but even this genius novelist couldn't, quote-unquote, pull the trigger. Right? He had all the... It was all there. The impossibility was not his father's failure to read, but his confrontation with the mythology of the father that he was so domineering that he he was he controlled and informed his son's relationship that hierarchy is fixed even in the realm of possibility of of legibility and and he couldn't do it he couldn't do it but when you read it you can sense the liberation and the freedom and the excitement in his voice as he almost launched this assault both against the father, but also for himself, to defend himself and his art, artistic practice. And, and it's a brilliant, um, almost a, like you said, a manifesto mm-hmm. that, that he, he, he couldn't send. Mm-hmm. Necessary to write, but not necessary to send, right. maybe. Right. I still think there's something so fascinating about the way you've constructed this um, with the sort of outs, I guess I, I see outs in it, in that construct of the mother never encountering this text. Yeah. Um, language is one. Right. Because throughout the book, Little Dog is translating for her, yeah. helping her understand the Victoria's Secret catalog right, <laughs> right, and, right. and other things, you know, helping her understand the English world in the U.S. Right. Um, so I think the reader wonders if Little Dog will help her understand this yeah. one day. Yeah. If not now, is that? Did you think about that? Part absolutely, of it? absolutely. I think the initial there's earlier draft mm-hmm. where I navigated more of the present tense. Mm-hmm. Where is little dog now? Mm-hmm. What he does, and I decided to drop all of that and have it only be the letter, the letter that refuses to narrate the present, mm-hmm. because I wanted that to be up in the air. It, it felt too closed to to know to to offer a reader that they're okay. I think I'm not sure if they're okay, and I think I felt that it would be fraudulent of me to to have a world where they're moving in the present, you know, in an aftermath. It was more important to stay in the tension of this this dictation this unrelenting confession um, because I wasn't sure if they're going to be okay. And, and I don't know if they are. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things this novel really puts forth is, is happiness a true destination? You know, we're told that the beautiful thing about this country is that we get to pursue happiness, that each citizen, each individual has the right to pursue happiness. But it's interesting that happiness is something that is hunted. Already the way we identify ourselves in this country is through possession. Happiness must be chased and (laughs) pursued. Um, And I think living as an American 
I realize happiness is not so much a, a finish line. Because then what? It doesn't last. Right. We know it doesn't last. And I think that's one of the, the, the misconceptions of that totem, of that decree, which is to pursue happiness, is that it doesn't last. The finish line, there's, there's life after the finish line. And what do we do now? And I'm more interested in happiness as, as a rest stop <laughs> on, the, on the road, on the long road. You know? Is that just restlessness, though? Is that just saying, now, now I've achieved what I set out for, now I want something more? I think it's, it's not so much restlessness as this inevitable um, ephemerality of, of, of joy. Joy is special because it's rare. And I think it's not so much it's a pit stop and now I got to go, but it, this pit stop stops being useful and, and, and we have to keep going forward. So I'm more interested not so much in joy and happiness in as much as understanding. Mm-hmm. Understanding is sustainable. By understanding, we can avoid the hurt that makes joy so necessary. This is The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And we're speaking with Ocean Vuong, who's author of the novel On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. He's known as a poet and now novelist. Um, Frank Uli is our engineer today. We want to thank him for doing a masterful job behind the board, as he always does. Thank you, Frank. <laughs> and I'm Amanda Uli, your host this summer. Um, I think we'll hear another song that you chose. And then um, I very much would love for you to read a passage uh, from the book when we come back. Beautiful. Um, this is Iris Dement. This is The Living Writer Show on WCBN. We're speaking with Ocean Vuong today, um, author of On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. And we'd love to have you read a passage now for us. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, and this passage is just a, a quick, dizzying catalog of, of life in Hartford. And in this scene, the two boys who fall in love, Trevor and Little Dog, are going on a bike ride at night. Uh, across the river and little dog starts to see all of the landmarks and uh, the buildings that ignite the memory of his life in Hartford and what the city means to him. So it works, it uses the Whitmanic catalog of Walt Whitman uh, to quickly 
have a quick snapshot uh, of life in the city. We rode along the Connecticut River as night broke into itself. The moon freshly high above the oaks, its edges hazed by an unseasonably warm autumn. The current churned with white froth to our right. Once in a while, after two or three weeks without rain, a body would float up from its depths, a bleached flash of a shoulder tapping the surface, and the families cooking out along the banks would stop, and a hush would come down along the children, and then someone would shout, Oh God, oh God, and someone else would call 911. And sometimes it's a false alarm. A refrigerator rusted and lichen-stained to the shade of a brown face. And sometimes it's the fish, gone belly up in the thousands for no reason. The river face iridescent overnight. I saw all the blocks in our city you were too busy at work to know about, Ma. Blocks where things happened. Things even Trevor, having lived all his life on this side of the river, the white side, the one I was now riding on, never saw. I saw the lights on Asylum Avenue, where there used to be an asylum that was actually a school for the deaf, that caught fire and killed half a ward back in 18-something, and to this day no one knows what caused it. But I know it as the street where my friend Sid lived with his family after they came over from India in 95. How his mom, a school teacher back in New Delhi, went door to door, hobbling on her bloated diabetic feet, selling hunting knives for Cutco to make $97 a week cash. There were the Canino brothers, whose father was in jail for what seemed like two lifetimes, for going 70 on a 65 in front of a state trooper on 91. That and the 20 bags of heroin and the Glock under his passenger seat. Still, still. There was Marin, who took the bus 45 minutes each way to work at the Sears in Farmington who always had gold around her neck and ears, whose high heels clacked like the slowest, most deliberate applause when she walked to the corner store for cigarettes and hot Cheetos, her Adam's apple jutting out, a middle finger to the men who called her faggot, called her homo who'd say, holding their daughter's or son's hand, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to cut you, AIDS going to take you out, don't sleep tonight, don't sleep tonight, don't sleep. We passed a tenement building on New Britain Avenue, where we lived for three years, where I rode my pink bike with training wheels up and down the linoleum halls so the kids on the block wouldn't beat me up for loving a pink thing. I must have written down those halls a hundred times a day, the little bell clinking as I hit the wall at each end. How Mr. Carlton, the man who lived in the last apartment, kept coming out and yelling at me each day, saying, Who are you? What are you doing here? Why don't you do that outside? Who are you? You're not my daughter. You're not destiny. Who are you? But all that, the whole building is gone now, replaced by a YMCA. Even the tenement parking lot, where nobody parked since no one had cars, busted through with weeds nearly four feet high, is gone. All of it bulldozed and turned into a community garden with scarecrows made from mannequins thrown out by the dollar store off Bushnell, 
Entire families are swimming and playing handball where we used to sleep. People are doing butterfly strokes where Mr. Carlton eventually died, alone in his bed. How no one knew for weeks, until the whole floor started to reek and the SWAT team, I don't know why, had to come bust down the door with guns. How for a whole month Mr. Carlton's things were left out in a big iron dumpster out back, and a wooden hand-painted pony, its tongue-lowed face, peeked out, peeked out of the dumpster's top in the rain. Trevor and I kept riding, past Church Street, where Big Joe's sister OD'd, then the parking lot behind the Mega XX Love Depot, where Sasha OD'd. The park where Jake and B-Rab OD'd, except B-Rab lived, only to be caught years later, stealing laptops from Trinity College, and got four years in county, no parole, which was heavy, especially for a white kid from the suburbs. There was Nacho, who lost his right leg in the Gulf War, and whom you could find on weekends sliding under Jack Ray's cars with a skateboard at the Maybell Auto Repair where he worked, where he once pulled a beautiful, screaming, red-faced baby from the trunk of a Nissan left in the back of the shop during a blizzard. How he let his crutches fall and cradled the baby with both hands, and the air held him up for the first time in years as the snow came down, then rose back up from the ground so bright that for a few blurred merciful hour, everyone in the city forgot why they were trying to get out of it. Such a powerful portrait of a place of Hartford, Connecticut, mm. where you spent time as a young person, too. Mm -hmm. Um, in the passage, you, uh, you touch on Trevor a bit and I found Trevor to be such an important part, uh, for the reader, such an important part of how little dog and his mother were seen. Mm. Trevor is, is a contrast to many of the other characters in the book. He's born in the U S he's white. Mm. Um, and he, he was a contrast in many sort of sad and tragic ways, but also really joyful ways. Mm -hmm. I found him, um, I, I guess I would like for you to speak about that difference and yeah. whether you, you intended for him to be, uh, as joyful as I guess I, as I read him so many times. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you look at anybody close enough, you'll see all of it. Uh -huh. You'll see the joy, the, the flaws. And I think, one, when you write a book that does not privilege a linear plot, which I purposefully did not, mm -hmm. in a way it's a cardinal sin of fiction. Yeah. You know, we're taught in MFAs and workshops that to have a story, you have to have conflict. You have to have a protagonist that desires something or defeats something. David and Goliath. Hercules, right? The, the age-old stories tell us in the Western canon that a, a protagonist must destroy something in order to realize his self-worth mm -hmm. in, in the plot. I just wasn't interested in that. I, I just felt that if I'm going to write about American violence, I didn't want to repeat it. Mm. I wanted the characters. So when you don't have a plot where the characters are thrown into like a wood chipper. Like thrown into a problem to right, solve. Right, yes. exactly. Yes. When you don't have that, when, when characters are not props in this machine of plot, 
what you have then is an opportunity to look at, at them as people. Mm-hmm. So when you refuse plot, you gain people. And this book allowed me to look at people, including Trevor, more carefully. And you realize that, yes, you know, he, he is a white farm boy struggling with his sexuality. And in the midst of all that, he also has an obsession with sunflowers. Hmm. And to him, he loves them only because they look so out of this world. They look so cartoonish. They look like somebody drew them, right? Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of this character study is about somebody trying to break away from their milieu, break away from the shackles that they've been brought into. And, and when we start to look at whiteness this way, it, we start to see that it's actually a thing, a container that can trap folks. Right? Often writers you know, assume when they, when they write about folks, the people of color are named an Asian man, a black man. Mm-hmm. But the white folks is just a man or mm-hmm. Phil. <laughs> and I think, I think one of the pitfalls of that is that they don't see them fully. And one of the realities of being a person of color in America is that you always have to see folks fully to navigate. You, know, you can't ignore it. You can't ignore it. Yeah. And in this book, the only folks who are racialized in, in name are the white folks. And that's not as a way of saying, oh, let's equalize it, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of white authors name POC. That's not, I'm not interested in that kind of retaliation, if right. you will. I'm not interested in that. But what I was interested in was that for so many people of color, the naming of whiteness is essential to survival because we code switch. Mm-hmm. We have to know, right? Because we have to code switch to survive. We have to put on certain voices and phrases. And what that does is that it forces you to consider all lives wholly. And I think a lot of white writers fall into the pitfall of having stereotypical uh, uh, characters of color because they never consider them fully in real life. Right. But if you're a person of color, you have to navigate it. And, and I think that was one of the advantages of, of living as an outsider in America was that, in fact... It was training me to look at people closely. And you realize that that all this is a construct. Whiteness, race is a construct. And in this case, Trevor is trying desperately to break away from what it means to be a white, macho, rural. Boy. Yeah. Rural. Right. He said, yeah. Can I love flowers? I and he's the and I think one of the things I wanted to ask in the novel is what is the cost of a white American boy? trying to break out of these rigid standards set for him by a culture that was made before he was born. What is the cost of such a boy who wants to break out of this into something more like himself? In other words, what is whiteness but something that we see as malleable, negotiable, something that is still up for... Uh, grabs up for 
to make to to, to determine. To define. It's yet to be defined, right? And it's ma- it's not a fixed border. And so, what happens when a character gets to test those boundaries in order to what? Find pleasure, find joy, mm-hmm. and are those constraints so powerful that he fails or or he destroys himself in the process? That's one of the questions I have. Is the strict masculinity that we've set up for boys and men in this country, is it survivable if we ask for something else? Can we seek an alternative path? I think on the note of masculinity, I think Trevor, we see Trevor struggling mightily. And I didn't see that as a primary struggle for Little Doc. I wonder if that was simply the contrast. I felt like... um, I feel like he he had some more security in who he was, exactly. which I wanted to celebrate. You know, which would seem like a celebration. Exactly. Sort of in, com- in contrast to Trevor, you're absolutely right, and I think this is where, you know, we realize that we often talk about male privilege, mm-hmm. white privilege, and yes, there are privileges that are real, particularly when it comes to social economic realities, healthcare access. But also, when it comes to the imagination, white privilege might be restrictive and constrictive, mm-hmm. and especially as it informed, as it's doubled down by masculinity. So Trevor has much more shame than Little Dog does. Little Dog is raised by Vietnamese women. Mm-hmm. And in the Vietnamese tradition, queerness is uh, seen as powerful, like Tiresias. In the Greeks, right? Tiresias is seen as a sorcerer, as a, as a seeker, a seer. And in the same way, uh, two-spirited folks um, in native uh, Vietnam are seen as possession of, uh, of the future, clairvoyance, right? They're, they're seen as powerful and mysterious. And, and so Little Doc has, has, uh, is informed and educated differently. There's still shame because they're both in the American space, but Trevor is coming from a wholly different place. And I think one of the powers that Little Dog obtains is that he realizes when you look at somebody closely, you realize that on one hand, privilege can be beneficial. On another hand, privilege can be absolutely detrimental. And there's no easy way out of it. There's no clear-cut answer felt to me like this very unexpected way that we saw because little dog everything was new for him the country was new for him he was navigating so many new things that he was able to be perhaps more bold and more authentic in himself in his masculinity and his sexuality he was able to do that there was no mold to fit in right so he you didn't have, have to it. make it yourself and he ends up being the one that sets an example yeah. You know, for and Trevor. Leads. He leads. He takes the yeah. first move, right? And and it's a powerful power dynamic. And I think that's one of the beautiful things with a novel set around negotiations between people rather than people negotiating a goal or a plot. Yes. They they have to it's all about power. What we give in order to seek what we want and what we sacrifice in order to benefit those that we love. These are questions that I'm always asking in, in, in life as well as in, in fiction. 
And in the novel, we're speaking with Ocean Vuong, who's author of the novel On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. We're so glad you joined us in our Ann Arbor studio today. Deep, deep pleasure. For this conversation. I think we'll do um, a short break for a song, and then we'll, uh, we'll come back. Lovely. At night, our parents didn't know. Kept the TV gone, left on all the bedroom lights. No, I haven't seen you since. We lost all our innocence. You left me in the dark, but you drink in the park. Never be the same again. You and me were so, so close. And maybe that's what hurts the most It's out of my hands I've done what I can So I just save my breath and we're back on The Living Writer Show. I'm Amanda Yuli. We're speaking to Ocean Vuong today, author of On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. And, um... Thanks again for the song selections. I'm finding myself really enjoying oh, all of them. You're welcome. It's wishing, a pleasure. wishing I had Spotify. That's how they were sent to me, and I don't have that, so I'll have to oh, <laughs> figure Lord. it yeah, out. Yeah. You can still, could you still see the? I the, could see the, them. Okay, yes. Uh, yes, and here we are. Yeah. Um, so thank you for joining us and speaking about this book. I know you're on um, a book tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, you came mm-hmm. from New York, is New York, that right? Yeah, today, yeah. I wanted to ask you about. For such a deeply personal book that that began autobiographically, yeah. How I guess I'm, the question is, how are you doing? You're, you're out in the world. You're on television. <laughs> you're meeting readers all the time, um, and you're speaking about some very intense, very personal things in your book. Yeah. You're on the Living Writers Show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, how how is that? How, do you enjoy that part of publishing books? I enjoy the intellectual discourse um, uh-huh. with folks. I just wish um, I I went on this tour after teleportation was founded. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm not yes. much of a, an extrovert. So these things, you know, they have their costs. It's out of my comfort zone. But, uh-huh. but I get to engage in these questions that are so dear and important to me. And and I and to answer your question, I don't. It's not taxing to talk about the personal because this is what I think is the most valuable asset of language is to get to this moment, to get here uh, on the page, mm-hmm. in front of each other. When you're you're reading this book, you know we often use a lot of metaphors to think about what a book is, but I think the best metaphor for me is that the book is, at its best, a town square mm. where readers all over the world will, will just meet these characters, meet me, meet each other when they talk about, you know, talk to each other about the book. And then they go home perfect as they are. They don't need to be changed. They don't need to, mm. you know, be different. Right? They just, I think a, a, a best book is, it just shows you more of, your, of yourself. It's a it's a mirror. It's it's a mirror that's wiped for you. 
through sentence making. And, you know, we have this tool called language. And with it, our species has created entire civilizations. We, we, we first waiting for our barbecue to cook at the bonfire. Mm-hmm. And our ancestor looked up at the stars and said, oh, I, I, see, a, I see a cup. And someone else says, oh, I see a lion. You know? And in fact, we thought we were just naming things. But in fact, what we saw says so much about who we are. And through storytelling, we realized that, wait a minute, there's so much more to this person than just some, than my hunting partner or yeah. what have you, right? There's so much, there's this vast interiority. And from that architecture, we've built entire civilizations in order to care for one another, in order to meet each other's needs. And I think we're in a crisis of language in this country. You know, I think we're in a, a moment where language fails us. Or rather, that we fail to meet its original potential. And we're speaking past each other. We're, we're, we're using language to build walls instead of bridges. And so, I, I, I'm not, uh, I don't shy away from the personal, because that's why we're here. You know, the, the great risk is to spend our entire lives with those closest to us. And just say, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm good. Well, how's the weather? How about them patriots? <laughs> we, we fluff. We, we use language to keep each other at bay mm-hmm. rather than open up to each other. And the great loss would be that we would spend our whole lives with, you know, in proximity with those dearest to us and have no idea who they are. That would be the great loss. One of the things that your book did beautifully for me is it helped demonstrate kind of a challenge to traditional families. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I guess I think especially about Little Dog's grandfather. Yeah. He sort of pops up here and there yeah. in, in the narrative. Um, but that what you're saying is resonant of the same things. It's who we choose to associate ourselves with and how deeply we go in those right. relationships. Right. And um, who we surround ourselves with. And that love is, is a verb. Mm. It's action. And it's not a formula. Right. And we think of, if we look at on paper, we look at an immigrant boy raised by two schizophrenic, functional schizophrenic, um, traumatized women. You would say, well, that's a broken family. There's no father, there's no male figure. And I would argue that as long as there's love, enough love, and there certainly is, there's nothing missing there. No. That family is complete. No. And and joyful in its way yeah. and and flawed in its way as well, of course, but right. as all families are. Right. Well, um, given that we are running short on time, I'd love to close the show with um, a few things. Any advice you have for emerging writers? I do a lot of work with young oh, writers. Beautiful. And so if you have words of wisdom to share, uh, we would appreciate those. Yeah. Read everything. Yeah. Don't judge it right away. Don't read in order to say whether it's good or bad. Read to experience the text as one experiences music or weather. Just be inside it thoroughly. Second would be 
you should you should scare yourself <laughs> but don't be scared of yourself how have you scared yourself in your writing by following every thought to its end mm-hmm. you know and sometimes you you get to a dead end yeah and then you got to go out um you sometimes you scare yourself by discovering that nothing is as clear as black and white as you thought you know even even when we look at a word in a dictionary you look up you know happiness maybe there's two maybe three definitions but when you start to write when you start to really inquire into that idiosyncratic rendition of happiness you realize there's so many options that the more you write the more you dismantle the world as you know it that's a scary thing it's a beautiful thing because you realize that there's everything is possible there are as many ways to feel as there are sentences and you get to contribute to that great river of human emotions Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Amanda. Deep this, pleasure. This is The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We spoke to Ocean Vuong today, who's author of On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. I think we'll close out our hour with the last song that you chose. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks again. on your porch The smoke sank into my skin So I came inside to be with you And we talked all night About everything you could imagine Cause come the
Welcome to the Daily Sports Report. Thank you for tuning in to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Kellen Flynn. I'm joined by William Gregory and Adam Bressler. We're going to lead off today's show talking about a little baseball action. Clayton Kershaw and the Dodgers taking on the Minnesota Twins today. Bit of a controversy going on. Clayton Kershaw, perfect through seven innings, 80 pitches thrown, and they pulled him. Yeah, well, there hasn't been a perfect game in MLB since 2012. Felix Hernandez of the Seattle Mariners pitched that. This would have been the first one, and and there's only been about 27 perfect games in the entire 150-year history of MLB. But Kershaw was pulled um, in part because of the short spring this year. Pitchers haven't been able to ramp up uh, to full games yet, and Kershaw himself said that he was surprised that he got that far into the game he had not yet been through a simulated game with more than like 70 pitches, is what he said. I think he said 75. So I think a lot of people disagree with the decision, but the process is sound. Um, I think from the Dodgers', Dodgers perspective, they most likely thought that it would be irresponsible to pull him there, or to not pull him there. And it makes sense, like you said, the process of, of it makes sense. He's a guy that's dealt with a lot of injuries in the past, and this is a team that's not just looking at making a couple of uh, highlights in the regular season. They're looking at a World Series championship, and that's a decision that you have to make. Still, it's not very fun, and that's something that baseball has been really trying to address is the lack of fun, so to speak, 